Okay, well, let's go over our quiz here. Which of the following statements is true, and you can choose more than one? I put D. Okay, so if you have D, you have to fill in the blank. <laughs> you do? Yeah, that's what the blank's for. <laughs> <laughs> no, do you want to change your answer? <laughs> Final answer? I never had one. I put C. I put C. Yeah, C is actually the correct answer. Remember, we talked about this word essence and substance and nature and the Greek word ousia as all being the same idea of his his divinity, his divine substance or essence, which is one, singular. God is one. And then we suggested that the best word to use for uh, the threeness of God is, is persons. Greek word is hypostasis, and remember, some suggest you weren't, you're just not even trying to try to translate it at all. Just use this word hypostasis because there is no English equivalent, but we suggested persons is probably the best way to use it. Modes isn't, isn't strong enough, uh, and leads to what's sometimes called modalism, the idea that there's one God who just appears, appears three different ways. Uh, never all at the same time, and so, and so, modes probably isn't strong enough. Persons is better, and uh, we suggested that was true because persons implies relationality. Uh, so they are relational persons, and that's what uh, that's what's the significance of it. And so, uh, we will talk about this a little bit tonight when we actually have persons of the Godhead speaking of and to each other. Uh, then we have we recognize that there is a that's where we must have some sort of a plurality in the relational personhood. What about this word subsistence? You equate that with person. Yeah, I got, that, I got the reference. I got the idea that Sanders did subsistence. At least he, I thought he said three subsistences. I was three said. subsistences. Have you ever? I just I was new to me, and I just wasn't. That's not a word I've okay. used. Okay. About, I mean, it, it may be out there, but maybe it, I, I didn't know. Uh, we, we really cast about for what? I mean, substance doesn't seem right to us either, because it, yeah. you know, you think of a substance as something you hold and feel. Yeah. Uh, but that's why essence, perhaps. That's what I should have done. Right. That's essence in the blank. Well, that's why I I, I I tried to trick you there by putting substance. I actually that, changed the word is that there. One of the creeds, yeah. substance. Uh, was that it's a one essence substance? Word. Is that in one of the creeds? I wrote it above the word. Well, probably in the English translations, but when we're not written in in English, that's that's part of the tension here. Could be it. It it would have been in Greek usia. That's that's really what we're trying to translate. They're not they've they've been translated multiple times. So depending on what English translation you've got, it could say a number of use any number of words. Number two, true or false? We should only pray to the Father. Well, I, yeah, I have false because we do have at least one or two examples of uh, individuals in the New Testament. Stephen comes to mind, who's praying as he's being martyred. Uh, he prays directly to Jesus, who's standing uh, uh, invisible to him. Uh, so, 
uh, we, we have examples, firstly. But then we suggested, furthermore, that because of the oneness of God, these the, the, the actions of any one of the persons is never totally cut off from the actions of the others. Uh, so Christ, by the Spirit, offered himself up. And so even though Christ is the one who died, we have a participation by the other members of the of the Godhead. He's, Jesus isn't just off on his own doing something uh, without the permission or the approval of the other members of the Godhead. So, which sort of answers number three then for us. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are independent of each other. Is false. Uh, they never act independently of each other. They're always in perfect consonance with one another. In fact, there's a, there's a there's a big debate. I, I don't think I have a discussion of it in my notes here uh, as to whether there's one will or three in the in the in the Trinity. Normally, we think of persons as having wills rather than substances, um, and so that would sort of argue on the surface for three wills of God. Uh, but uh, um, recently there's been a lot of pushback against that and said there's really only one divine will. And I, I guess my compromising answer is well, there may be three wills, but they're always in perfect harmony. So it's something of a point. So uh, you'd probably go either way on that and I think and, and do so safely. But they're never independent of each other in an absolute sense. They're always... They're always uh, intersecting with each other at all times. Which then leads to our bonus question. This this is really trivia more than anything, but I just thought I'd put it in there. Anybody come up with that word that we used to denote the uh, fact that the divine essence circulates continuously through all three persons of the Godhead? I think you said it earlier. Hypostasis? No, that, that wasn't the word. Huh. I, 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 I think I succeeded in not saying it. <laughs> uh, there was actually two words that were there, the perichoresis of God. So the, circumcession is sometimes used as well. But I had to look up perichoresis. Is it perichoresis? The one who comes alongside the covenant, the comforter. Yeah. I remember hearing that word. It's a pair of cleats. You use them when you play softball. <laughs> okay well that sort of is a review of the unity of God which is really our run up to the tri-unity of God which is our which is our topic of discussion tonight I think that's where we cut off on page 49 if I'm correct right yeah, yeah it's three weeks ago so it's a little bit easy but the tri-unity of God and technically we're going to use the term triunity. This is something that Dr. McCune was big on. Trinity is actually incorrect because it suggests only that God is three, uh, where the triunity suggests the threeness and the oneness simultaneously. Uh, but I, I don't know that we're going to uh, change uh, change the masses here. But uh, the triunity of God. I want to start by talking about the importance of the doctrine because. I think sometimes we, uh, at least I, have looked at that and said, okay, why is this so 
important. It seems like there's other doctrines that are more important. That, but uh, you know, go to ETS. And what do you have to believe that there's a triune God and He's revealed Himself inherently in the Protestant Scriptures? Those are the only two things you have to believe to be part of the Evangelical Theological Society. And so perhaps it, I think it is worth exploring why it's so important that we affirm the triunity of God. And I've got six reasons here before we get into the discussion proper. Historically, I say, first of all, God's triunity is one of the most important distinguishing doctrines of the Christian religion, setting it apart from all non-Christian theistic religions. All other non-theists, there is no other religion that has this phenomenon. Whether we're talking monotheistic or polytheistic uh, religions, it also distinguishes Christianity from liberalism, which was uh, almost uniformly Unitarian, um, and it did not really place a lot of emphasis on Trinitarian doctrine. Secondly, without God's triunity, essential doctrines such as the Incarnation and the Atonement collapse. Uh, so, so the idea that... Uh, uh, God and the for the Father and the Son and the Spirit are working in consonance and all supplying different pieces of the puzzle uh, suggests that a, sing, a, a, a a baldly singular God could not accomplish all of this. That the one person of the Godhead. Uh, would be meeting the just demands of another person of the Godhead with the assistance of a third. So, so uh, without these, uh, the idea of incarnation—you know, the one of the persons being uh, isolated in a in a in a body, while the rest of them are are not atonement and such—seems to be it seems to be important here. Thirdly here, without God's triunity, the richness and specificity of Christian worship and prayer are diminished. And we find, for instance, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So it's a, a robust and uh, multifaceted uh, uh, emphasis here. Through Christ we have access to the Father by one Spirit. And in Him... Christ, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives through His Spirit. So we have these uh, this uh, this this intersection of the members of the Godhead uh, that add richness uh, to our worship and prayer and such. Thirdly, here without God's triunity, the patterns of Christian fellowship and sanctification are lost. Uh, John 17, my prayer is not for them alone, the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. And you, you read that, just, I, I, I'm, I'm not following. You know, there's just too many I's and them's and you's and me's. And I think that perhaps that might actually be something of a rhetorical intention of the of the author that there is this oneness. There, there's this there's this uh, there's this intersection uh, of of 
of not only the members of the Godhead, but then also the members of the church that, that, that were treated as one. And so it gives us then a pattern for what the church is supposed to look like. We're not supposed to be independent of one another. We're supposed to be quite dependent upon one another, each part supplying what the whole needs. Okay. Second Corinthians 3, We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we have patterns here that we follow in our sanctification uh, that couldn't be had apart from God's triunity. Fifthly, without God's triunity, ecclesiastical and familial social structuring has no basis and is subject to neglect and abuse. This is one that's come under some fire recently. But if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, this whole discussion here of how men are to relate to women, it's connected with how God relates to Christ, Christ relates to men, men relate to their wives, and so on and so forth, giving us a, a, a sense of what our social structuring is supposed to look like and why. To the degree that we get away from the Christian God, social structuring tends to fall apart because we have no we have no standard for it. Okay. I think that's true specifically in the church, but I'm not inclined to think that First Corinthians eleven is is to be thought of as strictly and only dealing with the church. It does seem like there's some societal kinds of structuring as well, at least some implications there for us. And then another reason for the importance is because the triunity of God is currently in a state of neglect. Biblical theology cannot adequately address the topic because it is not a biblical theological category. You can't look in the Bible and find the word Trinity, for instance. And so uh, the, the huge emphasis right now on biblical theology necessarily neglects this. Current trends in philosophy are away from metaphysics and render it a moot idea. Practical values of God's triunity are not easily seen. As, you know, they're, what we've just talked about is somewhat abstract. It's hard to convince people, perhaps, how important Trinitarian theology is. And then we've got new challenges to Trinitarian theology that are going largely unchallenged, such as oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, there was a big to-do about this four or five years ago when there's a T.D. Jakes, who's a oneness Pentecostal, was being accepted as as a brother on, on this in this. Uh, it's called the Elephant Room. It's a, a, a place where people come together and have conversations as Christians. And he was accepted as as a, a fully orthodox Christian when he was when he was a oneness Pentecostal. He's a, he's, he's a Unitarian, and there didn't seem to be anyone there that really cared a great deal. And some others did. I mean, there were some who sort of you know waved flags here, but it was it was was thought of as rather unimportant, at least in that setting. Social Trinitarianism, we'll talk a little bit about that. It's a little bit of a complex topic. Uh, it's coming into it to us from from Eastern expressions of Christianity uh, as, uh, as they seem to be starting to filter into what has been a predominantly Western understanding of Trinitarian theology, which uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit. Okay? So... <clears throat> 
that's why I think it's important that we look at this. Um, and so then let's look at a definition, some biblical data, and then we'll start talking about some of the uh, implications and questions and, and uh, nuances that we need to make. So some definitions first. By triunity is meant that the divine essence subsists wholly and indivisibly, simultaneously and eternally in three persons. <coughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm emphasizing again the simplicity of God, the unity of God. The, in, in the Son, for instance, we say the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. So he's not simply a third of God. He is all God, and yet he is just a one of three persons uh, that make up God. So I've said here, triunity is preferable to trinity, because it uh, says more. And then, uh, uh, because I've, I've used those terms, essence and person, uh, I want to refer back to our discussion last week to understand what we mean by them. So that's what we mean by triunity of God. There are a couple other key terms, some of which will become a little bit more important than others here, but uh, we're, all, we're going to sometimes use the word ontological trinity which is the discussion of the three persons of the Godhead with respect to their shared essence. Okay, And in this we're going to say that the members of the Godhead are equal in essence. But when we talk about the economic trinity, we're talking about the discussion of the three persons of the Godhead with respect to their diverse Functions and they don't all have exactly the same function. Okay, so they're equal in essence, but not always in function, and uh, that's going to help us uh, navigate some of the, uh, the discussions that we have uh, moving forward. Another pair of terms here that I want to raise here, just because they're becoming more and more prominent in the uh, discussions here. First, individual Trinitarianism. This is the approach of Augustine and the Western Church, which holds the essence of God to be primary and the persons secondary. Okay, and we're going to see as we go through the uh, through the history of the church, there has been a sort of a seesaw battle between those who have denied the threeness of God, and then there's a pendulum swing and then they deny the oneness of God. And so it's sort of a back and forth. But we sort of have it settled in where in the West there is a, a greater concern for the oneness of God, a lesser concern for the threeness of God. And so the, the tension here, the, the, the primary threat here is modalism, that we actually deny the threeness of God. On the other side, in the Eastern Church, I'm talking about the Catholic Church, uh, the, uh, broken into the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Social Trinitarianism has tended to dominate, dominate in the East. So this is the approach of the Cappadocian Church Fathers, which holds that personhood, especially that of the Father, is primary and the divine essence is secondary. So there's a great deal of emphasis on what the three persons do. In fact, there's uh, we're going to see here is someone who actually suggests that God is really like the Cartwright boys. You know, 
Adam, Hoss, and little Joe. Uh, and the, the only thing that they have in common is, you know, the Cartwright name here and their dad. Well, that, that goes a little bit too far because those are quite, <laughs> those are rather clearly separate essences here. If you watch the TV show, right? Uh, they're, they're quite different in terms of their substance. And so, uh, there's a, there's a tendency to there to see tritheism. Okay. So let's look here at any, any question on some of those definitions. Do they make sense to you? Well, let's look at some of the biblical data here. Start in the Old Testament, and actually, as we sort of were having the conversation here during and after the quiz, um, the, the, the uh, an establishment of a Trinitarian theology is rather difficult if all you're using is the Old Testament. Um, some have suggested in Genesis 1 that we have a reference to the Trinity because uh, the name Elohim we, we we identified earlier as a plural and so therefore there must be three of them but that doesn't hold up as we've, as we've mentioned. Uh, Elohim is a very common name for God. It is used for superlative beings and in Hebrew you often use a plural form uh, to denote not just numerical plurals uh, but actually a, a, a Plural of magnificence, for instance, uh, uh, like in in uh, in Job, we, we read about behemoth. That's uh, actually a that's a plural. It's but it's clearly in this description a singular beast. But he but he uses the plural throughout because what he's describing here is the the greatest and most massive of the uh, of the land creatures. Uh, or some debate as to what that is, whether that's a, a dinosaur or perhaps a, a woolly mammoth or some sort of a, a elephant, some, some sort of an, a massive animal here. Uh, but but it's that that's why the plural is there, not because there's a herd of them, uh, but because it's the greatest, it's the biggest, it's the king of the beasts. And so that's what we have with Elohim. That, that's what the plural is. And we find it used that way of other gods as well. So that, that plural doesn't help us. And then, of course, there, there's this there's this suggestion here, let us make man in our image. Uh, that could suggest that the members of the Godhead were having a conversation with one another. Uh, but probably what we have here is just a pronoun-noun agreement. Uh, so, the, uh, so they're using plural because Elohim is plural. Uh, and and uh, so I, I'm not inclined to think that that there's a numerical plural here, but if there is, all it is is a plural. It's not a threeness. Okay, it's, it's, the identification of God as three comes much later. Uh, even those who suggest that there's a plurality implied in these words is not. You can't really go so far as to say there's there's three. Uh, there's there's no indication in Genesis that there would be three. As we move forward in Scripture, we do start to pick up hints along the way, and as we as we as we move our way through Scripture, those hints become more and more pronounced uh, because there is a progress of revelation. Um, it it doesn't appear that anyone in the Old Testament actually gets it. That there's a Trinity, 
Uh, but as we're going to see, at least some of the hints are there, that there's a plurality, and we've actually got one or two here that would imply three, uh, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll, but nobody seems to have noticed it. But let's let's at least in the in, as we go through the Old Testament. So let's look at these. <coughs> Psalm one ten, the Lord Yahweh. This is the uh, the capitalized Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, this is David speaking of two lords that he has. Okay? So a greater lord and a lesser lord, perhaps we could we could say. So he's he's he understands that there are two well, he's the king, right? There's there's nobody above him except God. And yet he says that the Lord says to my Lord, and most would suggest here that this is a reference here uh, to Yahweh speaking to the second person of the Trinity. And this is how it's used in the New Testament. Because this New Testament, this this text, Psalm 110, verse 1, is applied twice to the person of Jesus Christ, identifying who this secondary Lord Adonai is. Okay. Now, whether David understood this reference of Adonai to be the second person of the Godhead is unclear, but he seems to recognize that there's two people above him. There's two persons that stand above him in the pecking order, and as far as we can see, there's you know he's he's the top humans humanly speaking, and so he seems to recognize two. Psalm two possibly could say this: uh, "I will proclaim the decree of the Lord." He said to me, "You are my son. Today I have become your father." This is applied also to Jesus Christ, but probably what we have here is a coronation psalm. So the uh, the statement, you are my son, is not a statement that Jesus became the son at the incarnation or at his baptism, uh, but rather he is recognized for his kingly role. And so this would be a coronation psalm that would have been used uh, at the installation of any number of kings in the Old Testament. It could be used for Solomon, for Rehoboam, for any of the godly kings of, of Judah, uh, this this psalm could have been applied to them. But it is ultimately applied to Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, in retrospect, we can say, okay, uh, there are two persons of the Godhead in view, but it's a little unclear that the Old Testament saint would have been able to notice that, would have been able to spot that. The Old Testament data concerning... The angel of Yahweh. Remember this angel of Yahweh who is almost certainly God himself who comes and has conversations. I've got uh, uh, several of these here. Um, you know, the, in Judges, Manoah, Samson's parents recognize this angel of Yahweh to be Yahweh. He, they recognize that this angel of God, angel of the Lord, is in fact the Lord. Same is true when Abraham has conversations with him as well. And and what is perhaps the most interesting is in Zechariah 1, 12, and 13, there seems to be a little bit of a conversation that's held between the angel of Yahweh and his father. Now, this is probably, the, again, if we're, if, we're, if we're talking about persons being 
relational as, as far as their definition. We do seem to have an occasion here in Zechariah 1 where the two, two members of the Godhead are, are, are talking to one another. Uh, see if I can clear that up here. Zechariah 1, 12, and 13. Then the angel of Yahweh said, Yahweh Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel of Yahweh who talked to me. Okay, So we have a conversation that takes place between the angel of Yahweh, who is Yahweh, and Yahweh. So we've got, so, I mean, it, it at least suggests that there's some sort of a plurality uh, in, in place here in the Godhead that Zechariah certainly should have noticed. But again, there's no real indication that he's, he's developing any sort of Trinitarian theology uh, based on this, this, this uh, data that he records. But as we move along, we do seem to be getting greater and greater hints. Uh, that there is there's something to this oneness that also involves a plurality. But uh, like we said, we, we've got to establish the oneness of God before we can start talking about the threeness of God. And so the Old Testament is the emphasis is clearly on the oneness of God. But as we move through, there's there's, there's hints that start dropping. Uh, in the writings of the Jewish rabbis in intertestamental testamental period, were there any like speculations or anything on passages, any of these passages? You know, I, I, I haven't done the uh, done the research to be able to answer that one, but I would suspect that once Jesus comes, starting to claim to be this second person of the Godhead, they would have shut those things down pretty hard. <laughs> but I, but I, like I say, I don't know that. I, I'm just speculating. But Judaism never entertained a doctrine of plurality. Right. The interest. It would be interesting to see what they would say about these yeah. verses where God's talking yeah. to God. Yeah. But they never really entertained any plurality. God often makes references to His Spirit which perhaps might imply that there are two persons here. But it doesn't appear that the scripture writers picked up on this. In fact, you know, we, we can sometimes use that kind of language as well. My, my spirit is downcast within me. Well, I'm not suggesting I'm schizophrenic here, that I, you know, there's two persons at the end view. So, so probably the Old Testament writers weren't thinking separate person when they see my spirit. Uh, but uh, but rather, uh, uh, that doesn't mean that he wasn't Trinitarian. It's just that they probably didn't recognize it. Some would suggest that these personalizations of the word of God and lady wisdom in Proverbs 8, uh, that they, they, they take on contours that almost make them personal, that the word of God is somehow a personal extension of God or that wisdom is a personal ex- extension of God crying in the streets and beckoning and, and, and such. But probably that's just anthropomorphic language. I, I don't think we should look at that and say, okay, there's multiple members of the Godhead here. Probably the closest thing we come to a 
reference to a cry unity probably would come in Isaiah 48, verse 16. But even here, there's a couple of problems. Here, the sovereign Lord, the Father, has sent me together with his Spirit. And so here's probably the best candidate for explicitly Trinitarian language in the Old Testament, and we find in the New Testament that Jesus actually cites this, right? The Father sent me together with his Spirit. Okay? Um, And so there's a lot of debate here. Okay, did, did Isaiah recognize this? Who is the me? In Isaiah, and some would suggest that Isaiah would have thought it of, of him as him, himself. Others would suggest that he is speaking for the suffering servant, okay? Who is who is this this prophetic reference to Jesus Christ? Um, again, it doesn't appear that Isaiah is just convinced of a Trinity here, but this is probably the closest we come to any reference to Trinitarian theology in the Old Testament. But you, as you can see, it's, it doesn't seem to be a major theme. Okay, it's, it's just hints dropping here and there, and it's not really until the, the, the three members of the Trinity are, are seen together in the same place with, with relationship to each other in the New Testament that it, that people really start to get it. Okay, okay. There's a threeness here. And when they would write about the Spirit coming on upon someone, like the Spirit came upon Saul. Yeah. At that point, were they thinking two? I don't know that they were. I, I think perhaps they when they say that this this the Spirit of God came upon them. I don't know that they were thinking ah second person of the Godhead came upon him, but just rather some sort of a of a manifestation of God. Uh, came upon them. I, I I don't know that they were necessarily thinking thinking in terms of another person, the Godhead. Uh, the language doesn't require that, and uh, there, again, there doesn't seem to be any indication that they recognized it. If they did, they sort of kept mum about it. By the time you get to the New Testament, the uh, the it it, it is as. Bill was mentioning here with that reference to warfare. It just does, sort of does seem to be kind of sudden that all of a sudden it just everybody seems to know there's a trinity, and so that that it is it is a rather sudden thing, and uh, it sort of it, it is a, a bit of a surprise to us. But the witness is abundant. Luke one, perhaps the first demonstration of this, the Holy Spirit. This is what Gabriel says. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born inside of you will be the Son of God. Okay, so, you know, the the Most High, the power of the Most High, the Father here, and the Spirit will come together to produce in your womb the, the Son. He'll be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Okay, so now now we've actually we we've actually identified this this second person as the Son of God. Now he's identified as such, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Okay, baptism of Christ, all three of them come together. The Son comes up out of the water, the dove flies through the sky, and the Father speaks from a cloud. Okay, so again, we've got these relational beings now. 
relational persons. In the Christ's high priestly prayer, the Son asks the Father to send the Spirit. Okay, so again, three persons. Baptismal formula, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the uh, language is such that they actually have to be separate elements here. They're not just, this is not just separate names for the same person. These are separate persons. The apostolic benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. We've already looked at this New Testament formula for prayer. Through Christ, we have access to the Father by the Spirit. The electing work of God, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. A similar reference in 2 Thessalonians. Hebrews 9, the Trinitarian nature of God's atoning work, which we've mentioned already. Christ, through the Spirit, offered himself unblemished to the Father. And then the uh, confidence that that we all have in Jude here. As you pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life at his second coming. It's probably implied there. Okay, so it's suddenly very abundant, these references here. And these are these are just the ones that, with reference to all three in the exact same context, we could we could really multiply them out if we wanted to put two. Uh, but uh, these are these are just a sample, and it's not an even an exhaustive sampling of these. So suddenly we now have three uh, relational persons uh, together. Okay. So questions here on the biblical material. Okay, let's see if we can't tease out some of the nuances here. Um, There are some historical misconceptions about the Trinity that have uh, emerged. There's misconceptions of God's triunity that minimize his threeness. I don't know that we necessarily need to go through all of these. We're, I'm, I'm sort of looking for places to save some time here, and this may be where I do it. Now, there, there's just a list of some of the uh, the heresies that have been around historically and show up from time to time in the modern day as well. So uh, you can can peruse those on your own, but I've got to save a little time here. So let's move on to point E. Talk about the relationship. How, how do these three persons intersect here in this Godhead. Well, first of all, we say that they're objective to one another. Remember, that's that's our our critical word here that we use. They're relational to each other. That's what makes them separate persons. So God sends the Son. The Father sends the Spirit at the request of the Son. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. The Father loves the Son doesn't love himself in some sort of a narcissistic sense. He loves his son, which I think actually sort of saves you know, this, this, this whole idea of 
Yeah, John Piper talks about this Christian hedonism where God is all about his own self-interest. It sounds like God is a, a terribly selfish God, but when you realize that there's three, uh, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's acting in his self-interest, but he's, he's acting in the interest of the other two persons of the Godhead. So I think it sort of takes the, takes the edge off of that uh, reference to hedonism that, that Piper uses a lot. Uh, so the Father loves the Son, the Father speaks to the Son. Each person of the Godhead has a consciousness that is his own, distinct from the others. Each one can say, I, and address the others as you, and not be confused. Okay. Father, glorify me in your presence with, with the glory that I had with you before the world began. So they, they can... They're, they're objective to each other. You are my son. The divine persons are all equal in being, power, and glory. Each one is called God. We've already seen that. All three are pa- paired together in parallel constructions. It's not as though there's priority given to one. And in fact, there's no fixed ordering of the three persons in Scripture. We tend to think of Father, Son, and Spirit as as the standard way of of referring to the Trinity. But as you look at the list here, every single one of the uh, possibilities is there but one. You know, Father, Son, Spirit, Father, Spirit, Son, Son, Father, Spirit, Spirit, Father, Son, Spirit, Son, Father. The only one that isn't in the Scripture is Son, Spirit, Father. Uh, And that just seems probably to be a fluke more than than anything. There doesn't necessarily have to be a set order here in terms of their ontological value. Each one is God, and so the ordering is not uniform uh, throughout the Scripture. Now, as we get into the economic trinity, there does seem to be a pecking order. Uh, uh, nonetheless, it, it, we, we, we do notice these, uh, these orderings and, and discover that, at least in terms of their essence and value, they're the same. And so the ordering doesn't matter in that sense. We also find here that the uh, Father and Son receive prayer and praise equally. All must honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So each one receives worship, so they're separate. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, sonship here. I'm going to come back to this, but... Uh, Jesus is called the Son of God, but we probably shouldn't think in terms of biological terms as though Christ was produced by the Father or created by the Father. This is the historical heresy called Arianism, that the Father uh, produced or created Jesus. Jesus is the first and greatest of the created beings, but he is not God. Um and that's not how we should understand the sonship of Christ. Instead, sonship should be understood in the Hebrew sense of partaking of the nature and quality of the parent term. So, for instance, as you go through the Old Testament, they don't, this, this doesn't really show up in the English translations because these are they're they're uh, they're they're idiomatic and so they're smoothed out in the English. Uh, but if you looked in the Hebrew, Noah was a son of five hundred years. Well, that doesn't make much sense to us in English. Uh, but, but what it means here is he is characterized, he has the qualities and nature of a 500-year-old man. 
whatever that is. <laughs> Dust. <laughs> uh, Jonah's gourd was called the son of a knight. Well, what does that mean? Well, it was a gourd that grew up in a single night. So it was a plant that grew up for him. Judas was the son of perdition. Perdition is not his father's name. But rather, he is a person who is characterized by this vice. <coughs> Barnabas, uh, oppositely, was the son of encouragement, son of consolation, uh, because he was an encouraging. He's he is his by his very nature, he was an encouraging person. Uh, again, encouragement was not his father's name. Ezekiel is called a son of man. Now, sometimes that's technically a, a technical term applied to. Uh, to uh, Jesus Christ here, but for in Ezekiel, he's called the son of Ma- a son of man, which simply what he means is means he's a human. He has the qualities and characteristics of a human. So, hey, you man, and he's called son of man. So, when we see that, that's sort of a, a an entree into a discussion that we still get to have here. But the sonship of Christ does not mean that he's the biological product of the Father. Uh, but that he shares in the qualities and characteristics of of the Father. Economic hierarchy is no impediment to ontological equality. What do I mean that? Just because they are equal in essence does not mean that they are always doing the same thing and they don't answer to one another. In the divine administration, the Father seems to be first. The Son is second, and the Spirit is third. The pattern here is that uh, Father is the origin and the end, the Son is the mediating vehicle, and the Spirit is the assisting agent. We find this in Ephesians 2, through Christ we have access to the Father by the Spirit. So Christ is the mediating agent, the goal, the end, is the Father, and the assistant here one who assists us in our prayers with groanings that cannot be uttered, is the Holy Spirit. Uh, We see the same thing here in uh, the pattern of creation. Let me just read this one. I think this one's a fairly clear one here. It says here in chapter 8, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came into being. So he's the mediating agent. Now there's not a reference here to the Spirit, uh, but uh, but you, 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 get the, you get the picture here. Okay, and same thing happens with redemption. The Father plans it. The Son executes it. The Spirit applies it. So you you have this pattern rather routinely uh, through the Scripture with redemption, creation, prayer, and so on and so forth. With respect to their mission then, the Father is the head of Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 11.3, establishing here uh, the, the, the hierarchy within, certainly within the church, and I think probably with implications here, for social structuring generally, the father is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, the man is the head of the woman, okay? Which some people don't like to hear, uh, but there, there does seem to be an implication here that there is some sort of a headship that the father exercises over the son. 
Um, Jesus Christ himself admits this when he says, the Father is greater than I. He has sent me. Christ is working on the behalf of his Father. And ultimately, the last act of earth history here, is the deliverance of the kingdom of Christ up to his Father. So, uh, so we, we find here that the, the Son is working on the at the behest of the Father, and uh, his work is not done until he until he, until it uh, until it is all returned to him. And both the Father and the Son then are are involved in sending the Spirit. I will I will petition the Father and. He will send the Son, and we will send oh, the Spirit, and we will send the Spirit, and we will make our abode with with men. And so, uh, this is a, a, a so so the Spirit is in change, in, interchangeably the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Son. Romans eight nine. We typically see the Holy Spirit described as the Spirit of God, but in Romans nine, he's also called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Which implies then that he is he is you know beneath Christ at least in the hierarchical hierarchical ordering of the Godhead. So there's an economic trinity uh, whereby, functionally speaking, not not in terms of their essence, which they're they're equal in essence, but in terms of their function, there seems to be a pecking order uh, within the Trinitarian arrangement. This is. This is the thing that's sort of been a, a quite a bit of a debate lately uh, in evangelical life over the last two or three years. Uh, but I'm I'm inclined still to to hold this. It, I I have not been convinced to give up on it. it. Seems like that's fairly well established here in scriptures. Thoughts on that? How yeah. is oh, go ahead. How is Christ the incarnate Christ omnipresent? Well, he's not. The incarnate Christ is not omnipresent. Because um, I thought I read somewhere in, somewhere in our reading they said he was. Cause well, Lutherans end. believe that. Okay. But uh, but when he was on earth, was he wasn't omniscient well, as well, was Logos. He? You mean the incarnate Logos? What do you mean by Christ? See, that's the point. Right. The incarnate Logos was omnipresent. But... but Right, right, but, well, the, but now that he's, but not as not in his inc- not in his incarnate form. Well, not his earthly incarnate. Form. Yeah, he's not he's not physically present everywhere in his in his in his incarnate form. That's that's what I. Yeah. But what about omniscience? As well, okay. Well, let, let's 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 back up. Just because the physical incarnate form of Christ is not omnipresent doesn't mean the second person of the Trinity is not omnipresent. So the second person of the Trinity, the Lagos, remains omnipresent. But there is a localized manifestation of the second person of the Godhead in Christ. And that's in one place at at any one time. It's not everywhere. Then you start, at my level, you start thinking through this, you're like, man, my thinking could be heresy. <laughs> it very quickly can become yeah. that way, right? <clears throat> well, it's important to get what he just said about Lutherans. Luther had this strange view. What did you call it? Ubiquity? 
Yeah, it, yeah. This that that the actual humanness is omnipresent. The the human Christ is omnipresent. Right. It's one of Luther's strange yeah. ideas, I think. Well, he. I mean, he's struggling with this the yeah. same material yeah. we are because it, it it it's hard to fathom because I I think that you know you talk to most Christians mm-hmm. out there and you ask them okay where is God the Son and well, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven which is true but he's also everywhere he's also in the room with us so, so, so the Lagos is, is everywhere now there's localized manifestation of the Lagos in an incarnate form is localized but God second, second person is a Godhead is everywhere and and the same thing then could be said of many of the attributes of God. <coughs> was was Jesus the human on in his earthly his, his first advent? Was he omniscient? Well, there are certain things that weren't in his human brain. You know, when when uh, when 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 Mary went to teach him his ABCs, he didn't just say, "I know these already." <laughs> he learned. Them. He had to learn them. Um, because, because in his humanity, he was not omniscient. Now, that doesn't mean that the second person of the Godhead was ignorant. So, have you? This is a tough, tough one, but have you ever, on this number three in parentheses, do you have any thoughts about whether that title, Spirit of God, Spirit of the Son, are just sort of titles? Or do they actually have any meaning? Well, I, I guess I've, I've taken that as, as something of an agency. That that the spirit of God is that he's an, an agent of God. And the fact that he's the spirit of the Son means he's also an agent of the Son. That's, that's how I've understood. That's why I put it in here is that economic... Trinity, but I mean, I could probably be persuaded otherwise by the Greek expert over there. But <laughs> no, no, you know, it's funny that I've never seen a Greek grammar ever tackle Spirit of God. Huh. Uh, I was just thinking about, um, you know, I don't think Wallace even he has a genitive of agency, which is what you're sort of uh, uh, saying there. <coughs> but I don't think he puts. Um, Spirit of God. I've never seen anybody really try to classify that. That's why I was asking. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be interesting to see if he would do that. <clears throat> Who? Wallace. No, he doesn't. That never, never, <laughs> never, never does. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I'm looking at his classification. But I've never seen any grammar trying to classify uh, what Spirit of God would that is that just a title or does it actually have yeah. some meaning? Like you just said, it's more of an agency. You know? <laughs> Sent by God or agency. Yeah. You also note here that this in pers- this interpersonal relationship is eternal. Christ is eternally the Father, and we find these references to the eternal fatherhood of God. Actually, it's interesting. We have difficulty coming up with a statement that the Father specifically is eternal. We have lots of statements that God is eternal. 
Uh, but specific statements that the Father is eternal are actually the one that are hardest to come up with. It's it's been a it's been a, uh, a, a a thought of mine for years that we don't have in our systematic theology a section on patriology. We have a discussion of God theology proper, and then we have a, a discussion of the second person and the third person. But we don't actually have a discussion of the first person. Um, and that's largely because when you read the Old Testament, read through the, the scriptures, when you see this reference to God, you sort of automatically assume first person. Um, but we don't we don't really have a discussion of that. So there are very few references here to uh, the the etern- eternality of the first person of the Godhead. But we assume this to be true from a couple of these passages. The Spirit is the eternal Spirit. We have that in Hebrews nine. We've got abundant references to the Son being eternally Son. Uh, we've got a whole pile of them here. His Sonship can be traced to the beginning. In, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, and the Father then sent Him. Okay, And He sent Him as Son. He didn't become Son in the sending. He was the Son, always has been. It implies here that Christ was the Son prior to the sending. Now, there's no explicit text that states that Christ is the eternal Son per se. It follows from the immutability of God's person that this interpersonal divine relationship is eternal. God has always been, the Father has always been the Father, the Son has always been the Son, the Spirit has always been the Spirit. So this economic relationship seems to be eternal as well. See if we can answer this question here, uh, just to finish up this section here. Uh, it's a, so something of a thick question to ask here, but uh, something we need to get over. The question here of the eternal generation of the Son. This is a majority position in the history of the church, that the Father has eternally generated the Son and has eternally spirated the Holy Spirit, I know that's not normally a verb here, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll put that in the verb form um, for, for, the, for the sake of the discussion here. The relationship, the ontological relationship <coughs> with the divine persons is a matter of some debate. Historically, most have followed origin in arguing for an eternal generation of the Son and an eternal spiration of the Spirit, eternal acts, by which the Father makes common the divine essence to the other members of the Godhead. This is this is language that uh, Dr. McCune used as well. So it's it's a very very common understanding. Uh, it's probably the majority position. But as we're going to look through here, I, I have some real maybe it's my own, my own obtuseness that I, I just don't get this whole idea of a eternal generation. But uh, I. Because Raymond disputes that. Yes, he does. Yeah, that's part of the reason I, I have you read Raymond, because uh, that, that seems to be part of the Princeton tradition. Uh, Warfield did not hold to eternal generation, neither did the Hodges uh, um, and Raymond, and a number within that Princeton tradition uh, uh, rather strongly denied the eternal generation of the Son. And that's the tradition that I hold to. But it's rather a narrow tradition, at least when you're looking at the whole history of the church. 
Okay. The key text that they sometimes use are John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, so this eternal begetting or generating of the son. Is that NASU just a misprint? Well, you know, I, I used to... <laughs> used to use V? No, no. I the, Early on when they started, when when it was updated okay. in 95, oh, oh, okay. we used to... I think that's... I don't think it's used anymore, but for a while there it was okay. used, and I, and, I, and I put it in there. Okay. Um, and so I, I just haven't updated that. John 5.26, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, implying here that the Father is responsible in some sense for generating life in the Son. John 15.26, the Spirit of Truth proceeds from the Father, and it's been argued by many ontologically. You know, the Spirit sort of emanates out of the Godhead and 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 begins to his existence. Same with Psalm 2, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to you, me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And this is applied to Christ on four different occasions, three, three different occasions in the, uh, <coughs> in the, uh, in the New Testament. Uh, once at his uh, baptism, once at his resurrection third time, I believe, at his ascension. I, I'm, I might be incorrect on one of those. Another here is, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin because the one who has been born of God keeps him safe. And so the implication here is the one born of God, Jesus, who was born to God, keeps him safe. And so all this language seems to suggest that the Son was birthed by the Father, that he was somehow produced, he was generated, he was begotten, uh, that there was, and it's hard to get away from that, from, 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 uh, with that, that language and talk about an eternal generation because it's hard to think of that as a, as an eternal act. Uh, it, so that, that's where it gets a little bit confusing. I say others, including Raymond and your reading and, and me, uh, among others, suggests that while the ontological interrelationship of Father, Son, and Spirit is eternal, so there is an eternal sonship, this arrangement is not due to some sort of an eternal activity, begetting, on the part of the Father, but rather it's just an eternal relationship. So rather than speaking in terms of an e- eternal act whereby one produces the other, we just simply have an eternal relationship. So let's look at those verses again and see how how we get around them. Well, John 3.16, this word here, monogenes, I usually have a whiteboard behind me and I write this all up here. Uh, You can see that word here, monogenes. Two, you know, you you can probably see the mono, which means what? One, and genes is is the word that is... Uh, is uh, well, yeah. It, it, this is this is the word that's under that's that's under debate. Okay, there's there's a little bit of lexical uncertainty as to what that word genes means. There's two possible roots that it comes from. It can come from the the word genao to give birth to. 
Okay, so he is the only one born of God. But probably what we have here is a derivative of the word ginomai to be. A number of reasons why it's probably the, la- the latter, most significantly the fact that there's only one noon. But uh, there's no, a number of def- little, little factors there. It's almost certain here that we should think of this word as the only one who has become. Okay, so the only one who is, rather than the one only one who has been born. Now, it's hard to get that out of people's head, because everybody knows John 3.16 in the King James. He's the uh, only begotten son. Uh, but if you have an NIV, it doesn't read that way. Uh, it reads uh, the, uh, one the one and only son. So he is the only one. He is the, he is, he is the only one of his kind, okay, is the idea here. And so the word, gen, uh, perhaps you can see that word uh, genes in the word genos in the, in the, uh, in the taxonomy of, of animals, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Okay, so and and you know we we, we talk about uh, the kinds in, in in Genesis. You know, everyone produces after their kind, and so the idea of here Jesus being the only one of his genus, he's the only one of his kind then leads to this NIV translation here uh, of, of, the, of the unique son of God or God the one and only. Okay, so probably we don't have only, the only begotten is really probably a bad translation, but one that's going to be, take a long time to get out of our heads because of uh, the familiarity of the King James rendering. In First John 5.18, remember, we looked at necessarily doing these in order, I guess. Uh, we know that anyone born of the Son does not continue to sin. The one who has been born of God keeps him safe. In this case, it's very clearly uh, genao use. There can be no question. There's no question as to whether this could be something else. Here, clearly, born is used. There's some question, though, as to what the subject is. Who is the one born of God? Is this a reference to Jesus? Well, everywhere else you look in John's writing... The one born of God is always a reference to a regenerate person. This is how we know we have been born of God. You know, we have love for the brethren, we obey the commands, etc., etc. So 1 John has a lot of references to the one born of God, and every one of them has reference to a regenerate person, and not to Jesus. And so the suggestion here is uh, that uh, uh, the what that the that is that uh, uh, when we see here uh, the we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin the one who is born of God keeps himself safe okay now perhaps theologically we look at that and say well no 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 God does it all well yeah but we participate in it and so I, I'm I'm not inclined to think that this is a problem here I, I I'm not. I don't know if this is where you come down on this one, but the one born of God here I don't see as a reference to Jesus, but rather to the regenerate person. I don't know if you have a thought on that. Well, I mean, you have to take it with your, your position is. Yeah. You're forced to take it one or not. Right. I don't think that, I can say, I don't think the verse clearly says, because Altas is, let's look in our, our 
friend here. <laughs> We've already seen in our study of Greek that it can mean just a personal pronoun or it can be the reflexive pronoun, either one. So it could be God keeps him or God or the person, you know, keeps himself. I mean, yeah, we've got we've got, for instance, in Jude, keep yourself in the love of God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, so it is it is a reciprocal yeah. activity. God keeps us safe. We keep ourselves. I mean, there's a participation. Of so it's one of these verses that go either way. It could that, go either way. Settle, but theologically, it seems yeah. it, it, there's a, there's a good option here yeah. to thinking of this as Jesus. Let's move. We'll press on here to get these done. John fifteen twenty six. The Spirit proceeds from the Father, probably is not a reference to his essence, but actually his mission. So when the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, basically what we have is the Father is sending the Son on his mission. He's not giving existence to the Spirit at this point. It's not an eternal procession, but rather it's it's the Father is sending the Spirit on his mission, his New Testament mission in the life of the church. So this is probably not a reference to his his existence, but rather to his mission. Psalm 2, we've already answered to some degree. This day I have begotten you. Remember, this is a coronation psalm for the kings of Judah. So this would would be a, a psalm that would have been read for Solomon. Solomon, you are now the son of God, you are the king. You have been recognized here for your special relationship to God as the leader of the theocratic nation. And so this would have been used of Solomon, Rehoboam, and so on and so forth down the line until we come to Jesus Christ. And when Christ receives the right to rule, he is, this verse is used of him. Uh, this, you, you, you become the son. You have you have you have received the crown rights and the right to rule uh, the, the kingdom of God, and so it's, it's not a statement that uh, he's now suddenly become, you know, he, he he was just an equal with the father, and now he's the son, or God somehow produced him at this time. No, it's it's a recognition of his of his role as the king of Israel. The hardest, though, is John five twenty six where it says, just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has given uh, to the Son to have life in himself. And so some have suggested, aha, here is proof, ironclad proof, that the Father has independent life, and he gives to his Son independent life. But even there, there's a paradox, if you think about it. If the Son, if the Father has to give independent life to the Son, it's not independent life. <laughs> He's dependent on his father to receive it. So it's not independent life. And, and so probably we, we look at that, there's a vulnerability here. It's, he's probably not talking about his existence, but rather this is the right to extend life to to others. And that's the context. If you look at the context there in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 25 and 27, the context is here. The father gives life to whom he wants, and he has given to the son, that same privilege. He has life now in himself that he can share with others. So it's probably not a statement of his existence, but rather his right to share his life with others. So my conclusion in all that is that none of these verses clearly teach an eternal generation 
of the Son or spiration of the Spirit, but rather just it speaks to an eternal relationship. And I think this solves a lot of problems uh, if we if we recognize uh, recognize this. So I again I'm, I'm bucking a little bit the uh, the testimony of history, but I, I'm, I've just not been convinced here that there's a, an eternal generation of the Son. Thoughts. We wrap well, it up. Could there be a logical problem too with uh, an act like generating that has no beginning? Yeah, I mean, that language of generating is just—it's just hard to wrap your hands around. And, and and most who would speak of it speak of its of its mystical quality. Uh, but the, the the word has meaning, and it means to produce. Uh, I just don't like the idea of one of the persons of the Godhead being generated by another. It seem, seems like we, it causes us really serious problems in Trinitarian discussion. Okay. So that's our discussion of the Trinity. Uh, we've got, I think, two more weeks. Is that right? And uh, so we'll talk about the relationship in, in, that, in that time. We'll talk about the relationship of God to the universe We'll talk specifically about creation, his decree, and the uh, question of miracles and providence. So uh, as we have time, we've still got 18 pages to go here in two weeks, so we're, we're going to have to be a little bit to uh, gloss over a few things. Can I ask, before we leave the Trinity, uh, I know we're supposed to, supposed to stay away from um, different ways of thinking about the yeah. Trinity, but what, if you had to pick one... I would. You, you wouldn't. <laughs> what, uh, what about like the one that C.S. Lewis uses about the uh, idea of a three-dimensional shape in a, in a two-dimensional world? I suppose it's, that's probably abstract enough that it's not causing us too much trouble. But then again, I'm not sure it really helps us a lot either. So it's because of its abstractness. But yeah. I just don't think we have an analogy in the in the, uh, in, the, in, the in the world of phenomena that does it justice. And I think every it seems like every time we try and do that, we run into one of the heresies that we skipped over in our in our in our discussion. There.